Well, let me start off by acknowledging that a few things are obviously different this morning. Uh, to start with, I'm dressed up a little bit more than usual. Some of you may have noticed that. You may be asking the question, so what's the occasion? Well, the occasion is, in part, that we are celebrating 23 years together as a church. Uh, Grace Community Church was founded on Reformation Day, October 31st. 1999. And as a part of that celebration, we're going to celebrate this month the five solas of the Reformation. We'll be covering one of those each Sunday. And something else that maybe is a little bit different is that preaching through those five solas will be men from three different nationalities. And so this morning, you are so very blessed to hear from an Oklahomian. And then for the next three Sundays, Lord willing, you'll get to hear from a Chilean. Now, whether that'll be in English or Spanish, time will tell. But either way, I'm sure it'll be Calidad. And then on the fifth Sunday, Lord willing, you will hear from a Canadian. And so if you are good with all of this, rather than saying amen, how about a hearty Canadian A? Eh? All right, you just made Stephen proud. Our primary text this morning will be 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And as you are turning there on the screen behind me are going to be the five solas that we will cover this month. And so just a brief overview of those five solas. Uh, sola Scriptura, the first and really foundational of them all. Scripture is our supreme and sufficient authority alone. Then the next Sunday, we'll cover sola gratia. Scripture teaches that salvation is by grace alone. Then sola fide, Scripture teaches that salvation is through faith alone. Then solus Christus, Scripture teaches that salvation is through Christ alone. And then finally, soli deo gloria, Scripture teaches that salvation is to God's glory alone. And so this morning, we will be looking at the first of those, Sola Scriptura, where we consider uh, the historical context in which the essence of Sola Scriptura was diluted. And then we'll take a look at some of those who defended Sola Scriptura, followed by a definition of Sola Scriptura, and then finally we'll conclude with ways in which Sola Scriptura can be demonstrated in your life, in my life, and as a church today. And so that's where we are going this morning. But if you would now follow along as I read from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, we'll certainly come back to this scripture here in a moment, but first, let's look at the first point on your outline, sola scriptura diluted. Sola scriptura diluted. Would you agree with this statement? Scripture is our supreme and sufficient authority. Scripture is our sufficient and supreme authority. Authority. 
Now, if, if you affirm that statement with your lips and then with your lives, you immediately find yourself then at odds with the culture of our day, as did the reformers over 500 years ago, as did many as we see throughout the scriptures. An article in Crosswalk stated, although the phrase sola scriptura originated out of the Protestant Reformation, the idea of Scripture as final authority can be traced directly to God's Word. God himself, throughout the history of the Bible, has made the principle of sola scriptura reign true. And so is Scripture to be our supreme and sufficient authority? Well, the answer is obviously Yes, and this has been the case for God's people through the ages. In fact, if you go back to the time of the kings, the kings were entrusted by God to reign over the people, and yet even as they did so, they were to do so under the authority of the Scripture. And so in Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 through 20, God said of the kings that the king shall write for himself a book, a copy of this law, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. Why? That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not be turned aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left. And so throughout the scriptures, we see that those given authority by God were themselves to be under the authority of God in accordance to his word. In fact, not just the kings, but that is true for all people of all times, including us here today. As we continue through uh, the scriptures, as we think through the importance of God's word, Deuteronomy 32, 47, it says of God's word that it is no empty word for you but rather your very life. It is no empty word for you, but your very life. Now, as we trace those Israelites through Deuteronomy and through the judges, uh, we see that they didn't exactly get this very well. They did stray to the left. They did stray to to the right. In fact, we see this phrase repeated over and over and over, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds kind of like 21st century America, does it not? And yet listen to Proverbs 21 too, where it warns, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. By what standard does the Lord weigh or expose the heart? Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 says, for the word of the Lord is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And therefore, Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so scripture alone is to be our sufficient. It is to be our supreme 
authority. So going back to the Reformation then, why were the Reformers willing to literally lay down their lives that the common person could have a copy of the Scriptures for themselves? Well, in short, the Catholic Church at that time had so obscured the gospel in that it had both added to the Scriptures as well as taken from the Scriptures. And that then brings us to the second point on your outline, sola scriptura defended. Sola Scriptura defended. Why was there a need for a protest? Why was there a need to reform? Well, in part, the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 7, verses 8 through 9, to the Pharisees had come to characterize the religious leaders during the time of the Reformation. In Mark chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, Jesus said, You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And so what were the traditions of men that had infiltrated and come to corrupt the church that led up to the Reformation? Well, who better to inform us of these things than the very men who confronted them? And so let me introduce you first to John Wycliffe often referred to as the morning star of the Reformation. Wycliffe had applied himself rigorously to the study of theology, to studying the scriptures. And as he did this, he began to see just how corrupt the Catholic Church had become, how far it had gone astray. And so he challenged and he called for a reform within the church to return back to the supremacy and sufficiency of the scriptures. In the 1370s, in his writing called On Divine Dominion, Wycliffe wrote that the church's corruption, wrote of the church's corruption stating that there was no biblical warrant for the papacy, which was obscuring the church's true authority, scripture. Wycliffe wrote this, It is plain to me that our prelates, or the Catholic authorities, in granting indulgences, do commonly blaspheme the wisdom of God. Now, indulgences were documents of personal forgiveness from the Pope that were oftentimes sold at exorbitant prices. In another work of Wycliffe on the truth of sacred scripture, He goes on to defend the doctrine of the authority of Scripture. He wrote, All Christian life is to be measured by Scripture, by every word thereof. And therefore, Wycliffe also wrote, The laity ought to understand the faith, and since the doctrines of our faith are in the Scriptures, believers should have the Scriptures in a language familiar to the people. And so he committed his life then to the translation of the scriptures to the common language there, English. And so he translated the whole Old Testament into English and translated a good part of the New Testament into English until he died in 1384. Well, how well do you think Wycliffe's works and writings and translations were accepted by the Catholic Church? They were so pleased by it that 44 years later, the Pope, in his anger, had Wycliffe's body dug up, his bones crushed, 
and scattered into the river. Well, born towards the end of Wycliffe's life comes John Huss. And Huss also studied the scriptures. He became influenced by the writings of Wycliffe. And he began to preach actively against the abuses of the Catholic Church in that day, which included financial abuses, sexual immorality, and drunkenness that was common among the priests there in Europe. And so Huss wanted to see preaching and the Bible reading in the common language. He opposed the sale of indulgences, and he opposed the relatively new doctrine of papal infallibility, in part because the papal decrees were contradicting the Bible itself. He was adamant that church leaders should place themselves under the authority of Scripture and not over it. And so what was the result of Huss's confrontation of the corruption in the Roman Catholic Church. Well, at the Council of Constance, Huss was imprisoned, he was tried, and he was accused of the crime of being a Wycliffeite or a follower of John Wycliffe. He was not allowed to defend himself or his beliefs, but rather he was called to recant, and he was declared a heretic and was burned at the stake on July 6th 1415. Now, it's interesting to note that before Huss was lit on fire, Huss's name means goose. And he said this to the bishop right before his death. You may cook this goose now, but there will be a time when a swan will appear and you will not be able to silence him. And so we fast forward about 100 years and we come to Martin Luther. Luther, in being ordained as a minister, laid prostrate before an altar. And it just so happened, ironically, providentially, that the remains of the bishop who had condemned Huss lay underneath that altar. And so as you well know, Martin Luther... He came likewise to see the corruption of the Catholic Church, and he posted his 95 thesis there to the door at Wittenberg in 1517, where he was formally confronting the sale of the indulgences by the Catholic Church. Well, Luther is later summoned to a debate with John Eck, uh, who identified Luther with Wycliffe and Huss. And so you can only imagine where this is going. He was then summoned to another debate, or summoned to appear before Charles V in 1521 at the Imperial Diet at Worms. And rather than getting to debate the issues that Luther saw as being contradictory to the scriptures, Luther's writings were laid before him, and he was called to recant. He was called to recant before the authorities of the church and the authorities of the state. So Luther was granted a 24-hour period to prayerfully consider his decision. And so the next day when he comes, and again he is called to recant, we have these words now famous from Martin Luther, where he said, Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen.
And so Wycliffe, Huss, Luther, and many others in studying the scriptures all fought then for what would formally become defined as sola scriptura. And so in your outline, the next point, sola scriptura defined. Now, as what has been known, come known as the formal principle of the Reformation, Matthew Barrett, in his book, God's Word Alone, defines sola scriptura as the belief that only Scripture, because it is God's inspired Word, is our inerrant, sufficient, and final authority for the church. Let me read that again. Sola Scriptura is the belief that only Scripture, because it is God's inspired word, is our inerrant, sufficient, and final authority for the church. Well, that brings us back now to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. A note first from 2 Timothy 3.16, what is often referred to as the inspiration of Scripture. It says, all scripture is breathed out or inspired by God, as rendered in the uh, NASB version. 2 Peter 1.21 goes on to say, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter here is telling us, that it is the Holy Spirit who carried along the biblical authors so that what they said, God himself spoke down to the very last word. Hence, Stephen Lawson wrote this, every jot, every tittle, every chapter, every verse, every book within the canon of scripture is God breathed. It has come out of the mouth of God. The authors were merely the instruments in the hand of God who would record what he intended them to write. And so it is inspired because God himself is the author. And therefore, we can trust, second, in the inerrancy of Scripture. The inerrancy of Scripture. As God himself never errs, neither does then the word that he has given. It is without error, it is True. We said earlier, together as a congregation from Proverbs 30, verse 5, that every word of God proves true because God Himself is true. God Himself is truth. He does not err. So every word of God proves true. Now, can that be said of popes? Can that be said of politicians? Can that be said of you and I? That we never err, that we always speak truth without any taint of anything false. And so we see that God's word is trustworthy. It is infallible. And, and while it is important to note that little t traditions in the church are good, that church leaders are good, in fact, they're, they're biblical if applied rightly and done well, they are to subject themselves under the infallible word of God. And that brings us then next to the authority of Scripture. Going back to 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is what? It is breathed out by God. Who is the author of God's word? 
God. It is breathed out by God. He is the author of all scripture, and therefore scripture has authority over all people, from popes to Protestants to all people of all ages. It is authority over all of us. To that end, Michael Kruger wrote this. He said, Rome claimed a trifold authority structure, which included scripture, tradition, and the magisterium, which is the authoritative teaching office of the Roman Catholic Church, manifested primarily in the Pope, whose official pronouncements were to be regarded as the very word of God himself. The reformers took issue with this because the Pope's pronouncements sometimes contradicted God's word. And also they argued that the New Testament writings ending with the apostolic teaching was the final installment of God's revelation to his people. Therefore, it was God's written infallible word that had authority over the church, not the fallible leaders having authority over the word. The reformers did not view themselves as coming up with something new. Rather, they understood themselves to be recovering something very old, something that the church had originally believed but later was twisted and distorted. The reformers were not innovators. They were excavators. That's what they were seeking to do, to reform, to protest the corruption, to bring the church back to what God had intended it to be in the first place. And so the question, is a reformation still needed today? Amen. Amen, in all sorts of ways. So in regards to the Catholic Church in particular, which the Reformation was taking place in, in light of what was going on there, you can go to the Roman Catholic Church's website today on their catechism, and it says this, that the Roman Catholic Church does not derive her certainty about all related truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both Scripture and Tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Now let's think about this. While the Bible teaches that all have sinned except Jesus, the Catholic tradition teaches that Mary was also sinless. While the Bible teaches that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man, the Roman Catholic Church has exalted Mary to be a co-mediator with Christ. And so the question becomes, does the Roman Catholic Church have the, uh, the ability, the authority to elevate Mary to a place that God in the scriptures has not? You now let's bring this home. That's the Catholic Church. But what about our own lives? What about the authority? Authority and the reign of God through his word upon our own lives. What would those who know you and I best say that we live by and under? Would those who know us best say that we live by sola scriptura? And so in our own hearts and lives, is there not a need for reformation, for reform? Well, helping us answer this question of the need for ongoing rest, uh, reformation, not just in the time of the Catholic Church, but we can apply this to ourselves today as well. John Wycliffe wrote this. The true Christian was intended by Christ to prove 
all things by the word of God. All churches, all ministers, all teaching, all preaching, all doctrines, all sermons, all writings, all opinions, all practices. These are his marching orders. Prove all by the word of God. Measure all by the measure of the Bible. Compare all with the standard of the Bible. And that which cannot abide the fire of the Bible, reject, refuse, repudiate, and cast away. Oh, don't we need to do that today? Well, fourth, in addition to the authority of the Scripture, we see the sufficiency of Scripture. And this was a major component as well for the Reformers. Going back again to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable or adequate for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, Scripture is sufficient. It first teaches. It teaches everything necessary to know Christ unto salvation. And then once in Christ, it teaches everything that relates to life and godliness. And not only does it teach, but also when we fail to live in godliness, Scripture is useful for reproof, to convict us of sin, to expose false beliefs and wrong behaviors. And next, Scripture is useful for correction. How do we truly repent? What does it look like to walk uprightly? And then fourth there at the end of verse 16, it says Scripture is also profitable for training in righteousness. And so the scriptures show us how to, to discipline ourselves, to walk in the way for the purpose of righteousness and godliness. And then verse 17 goes on to tell us that when scripture is applied in this way, we have what we need to do that which God has called us to do. And so as Jay Adams used to say, the Christian should not say, I can't. Because God, through his word, has equipped us to do all of his holy will. The scriptures are sufficient. Now, obviously, the sufficiency of the scripture doesn't mean that all truth of every kind is in the Bible. How many of you, when you were ready to decorate a cake, opened up your Bible and tried to find instructions? Okay, the scriptures are not sufficient for how to decorate a cake. Or how many of you have searched through the scriptures to try to figure out how to get rid of those dreaded hiccups? Okay, the scriptures are not sufficient for getting rid of hiccups. Now, it does address the attitude in which we should do those things, but it doesn't specifically tell us how to do those things because that is not God's intent for the scriptures. Rather, it's sufficient for all things that pertain to life and godliness, to glorify him in our lives. And so what then did the reformers, and what should we understand in regards to the sufficiency of scripture? Well, listen to these words by John MacArthur as he answers this for us. He wrote, the Reformation principle of sola scriptura has to do with the sufficiency of Scripture as our supreme authority in all spiritual matters. Sola scriptura simply means that all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in Scripture. 
Scripture is the highest and supreme authority on any matter on which it speaks. Scripture is therefore the perfect and only standard of spiritual truth, revealing infallibly all that we must believe in order to be saved and all that we must do in order to glorify God. That, no more, no less, is what sola scriptura means. All right, so how should we think about this today? How can we see sola scriptura demonstrated in our own lives? What difference does God intend for it to make for you and I? Well, first, sola scriptura demonstrated. Let's consider, as with Job in Job 23, 12, that we need to be able to say, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Now we just hit on something that most of us treasure, food. Most of us treasure our portion of food when we're hungry and we sit down. In fact, I usually treasure Ella's food. If she doesn't eat at all, I'll help her with her portion as well because I love that, I treasure that. But more important than the food that we eat physically is God's word that he gives us to sustain us. That ought to be what we treasure more than the things of this earth. The things of this earth pass away, but the word of the Lord will never pass away. And so if our lives are going to be reformed, then our minds need to be informed and they need to be informed by God's word. Therefore, we first need Sola Scriptura for salvation. Sola Scriptura for salvation. As God has given us this closed canon of the Scripture, we must know the Scriptures if we're going to truly, savingly know Christ. We've looked at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, but verse 15 comes right before that, where Paul says to Timothy, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings or the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It is the scriptures that show us Christ, and it is in Christ that we find salvation. Jesus said in Matthew or in John 5 39, he said, You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And Jesus would go on to say in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Notice what Jesus did not say. He did not say that salvation is found through the traditions of man. He did not say that salvation is found by trying harder, doing better, doing more good works. No, Jesus said that salvation is through him as he has revealed himself through his word in the scriptures. And so the question for you today is this, are you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, forgiven of your sins. Are you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, forgiven of your sins? Oh, if not, believe 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in his person, his work, that he went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, that you might have forgiveness, that you might be credited the righteousness, his righteousness, that you need before the Father. Are you trusting in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you do that, there is indeed a reformation. It is a reformation of your very soul. But as we come to Christ, for those of us who have come to Christ, we come to know Christ savingly through the word, but also he gives us his word for our sanctification. And so sola scriptura for sanctification. What is it that Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer there in John 17, 17? Did he not say, sanctify them in the truth? Your word is truth. How do we become more like Christ, Christ-like? Jesus' prayer for us is that we would know him. We would know his word. We would know the truth that we would become like him. And so on the sufficiency of the word for sanctification, listen to these words by Steve Lawson. He said, God's redemptive purposes will be carried out in this world, a world by the word of God, which is sufficient to do all that God desires to do in this world. The word of God is powerful to convict. It is powerful to convert. It is powerful to conform. It is powerful to console. It is powerful to correct. The word of God is powerful. It is more powerful than any other object that you and I will ever hold in our hands. And it is this book alone that sanctifies and conforms believers into the very image of Jesus Christ. Well, sola scriptura is needed for our salvation. It is needed for our sanctification. On a very practical note, it is also needed for our temptations and trials. What was the original temptation of Satan to Adam and Eve? Was it not to reject sola scriptura? As they were called to believe the words of the serpent, you will not surely die. In contrast to Adam and Eve, how did Jesus respond when tempted by the serpent in the wilderness? He gave what we need to give as well. Sola Scriptura. To all three temptations, Jesus gave a threefold sola response. For it is written. For it is written. For it is written. Sola Scriptura. Jesus would go on in the Sermon on the Mount to say this in Matthew 7, 24 and 25. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Why? because it had been founded on the rock. The rock in context is the word of God. This past Sunday, I heard from a lady who had spent seven challenging years taking care of her uh, declining mother. And these seven years, which were hard in of themselves, were then followed by some personal and some family struggles. 
And while those of us who were hearing her stories leaked a, a few tears of compassion along the way, I was also immensely encouraged in how the Lord had used her trials, her temptations, her sufferings for his glory. He had brought her to a place of further dependence and understanding upon his word and his presence with her through her trials. And so as she shared and as we were encouraged by what she shared in God's goodness and grace upon her life, she also shared this analogy with us that I'll use to wrap up and hopefully bring home this doctrine of sola scriptura upon our own lives. She used the analogy of a gymnast. And so as we think of a gymnast, I want you to think about this truth that not if, but when you face temptations, trials, and sufferings, when those times come, think of a gymnast. Okay, where are we going with this? Well, let me try to explain, hopefully as well as, as she did. What does a gymnast seek to do with every jump, with every dismount? He or she seeks to land the jump well. Seeks to come down, hopefully gracefully, but to land on both feet and to stand and to seek to do it well. When it comes to our own thoughts, our own struggles, when our emotions are in a whirlwind, perhaps we're struggling with anxiety, maybe anger, maybe despair, whatever it may be. If we respond to our feelings or live by our feelings, then how are we likely going to land? Probably face first and probably in the process, hurting some people around us in the process. And so in our struggles, as we're struggling with those things, God in Christ, through his word, as believers, has called us and enables us to land well. And we do that in the midst of those struggles, as through prayer, we cry out to the Lord. And we ask him to remind us of the precepts of his word. It is written, thus saith the Lord, the things he has called us to do. And as we remember the promises of the Lord, that we may both land and stand firm upon the firm foundation of God's word. Sola Scriptura. It's not just something for the Protestant Reformation. God uses his word to continue to reform our own hearts and life. And that takes place day after day after day, struggle after struggle after struggle. As we remember that every word of God proves true. As we seek to let the scriptures be a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path. As we seek to test everything according to the scriptures, to the glory of God, that we may know the blessings of being found faithful in him. To that end, let me conclude with these words by the late R.C. Sproul. He said, if we want to see a new reformation in our time, which I think we all do, what are we going to have to see? What we are going to have to see are Christians whose consciences have been captured by sacred scripture and can say, 
here we stand. We can do no other. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as your word declares, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Father, fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we may walk worthily before you, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in our knowledge of you, being strengthened with your power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to you, our Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light as you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. O Father, according to your word, may our lives be lived by grace, through faith, in Christ, to your glory alone. Amen.